Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you are blessed by today's sermon. So there is so much in this passage of scripture. And when I first saw it, I was like, I, th- I don't know that I really want to preach on this. I, I, it is a journey that's set before us. It's this path that we walk. It's all of these things. And I think one of the things that I love about our tradition in general is that we are uniquely a, a, a tradition of cradle to grave. There are all these markers along the way that lead us to a point. Our, our faith in Christ, the way that we follow, the direction that we go. Think about some of the things that we have. We have Thanksgiving for birth or adoption, baptism, rights for admission of catechumens, confirmation, reaffirming or renewing our baptism vows, holy matrimony, rites of wedding, ministry to dying, burial. There's daily and family prayers. There's holy communion. All of these markers along the way that help us to know where we're going. And I think so much of this is important to us because it is so parallels our journey of faith that we have. But not every journey is as well planned and as conceived. And as I was preparing for this, there was something that just caught my attention that I was reading. Annie Dillard, in an essay, wrote Exhibition, Expedition to the Poles. And it describes an ill-fated Franklin expedition that perished because its preparations were adapted to the posh conditions of the Royal Navy Officers Clubs in England, rather than to the harsh realities of the Arctic. In 1845, Sir John Franklin, 138 officers and men embarked from England from the Northwest Passage to find the Northwest Passage across the high Canadian Arctic to the Pacific Ocean. They sailed in two three-masted boats, huge sailing vessels, carried an auxiliary steam engine and 12-day supply of coal for an entire projected two or three years voyage. Instead of additional coal, according to L.P. Kerwin, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ playing 50 tunes, china play settings for the officers and the men, cut glass, wine glasses, and spoons and forks that were particularly interesting. The silver flatware had the initials of all of the officers on them, very fancy. Engraved on the handles were heavy handles, rich pattern, engraved all the officers, all the officers' crests, The expedition carried no special clothing, only their finest officers' uniforms. What a colossal failure this became. In every exploration as they studied, it became the failure that was met with a catastrophic consequences. The ships, as they got into the ice pack, were crushed by the ice around Greenland. It's reported that 20 years after they had been abandoned, marooned, as their ships were crushed, that Inuit people began to find their bodies scattered across the ice as they tried to find a way out. The unprepared explorers died in an attempt to escape and survive. Sir John Franklin and all 138 men perished because they underestimated the requirements of an Arctic exploration. They ignorantly imagined pleasure cruises amid the comforts of an English officer's club. They exchanged necessities and luxuries and for ignorance, and their ignorance led to their deaths. As we enter into this passage of scripture, the cost of discipleship, it is a lesson in preparedness. Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem, and he knows that he's on his way to fulfill what his fathers asked him to do. Jesus has stirred up the religious leaders of the day, and along the way, he's attracted huge crowds. 
As it says, there are crowds that are with him. In fact, no longer are people just showing up, but large crowds are following him everywhere he goes. But there was a little bit of a problem with that because everyone that was following weren't following because they believed what Je who Jesus was. They were really more of throngs of gapers and onlookers and hangers-on without much commitment. And they conducted themselves as they were on the way to a holiday feast. So Jesus gave them a reality check as he turns and faces them, as he laid out in unforgettable terms the cost of being a disciple. Jesus did for his followers what Sir John Franklin failed to do for his. Any would-be disciple who listened would understand that discipleship would cost each person who chooses to follow dearly and would be confronted with the reality that to enter into discipleship one must be aware of the journey in front of them. Though the cost is high, with what Jesus offers is far, far greater. Let's take a look at the passage. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Huh. Hard words. Jesus does not pull any punches in this passage about what it takes. First, hate your father, your mother, your wife, children, brothers, sisters. Yes, even life itself. Second, carry the cross, follow him. Lastly, give up all your possessions. Easy, right? Right on the page, these are the words that Jesus speaks. And it's that simple and it's that difficult. Jesus' words don't just sound black and white. They kind of are black and white. It's all or nothing. We are either in or we're out. His words are likely not the first thing that comes to mind when we consider our faithfulness of what Christ, a life with Christ looks like. In fact, in our world, our consumerism, where we've cheapened the cost of following Jesus, Jesus does give freely of his grace and offers salvation to all who believe. Don't lose that. He does, through his grace, offer us life, eternal, a life with him, a life that's full. But can we become guilty of not sharing the demands and sacrifices required by the Christian path? Too often, we turn Christianity into a set of beliefs, but too often we can be guilty of divorcing them from the way of living and acting. It transforms our hearts and who we are, our lives. Again, please hear the grace in this. This is a loving message to people who follow. This is not a graceless message of you don't cut the mustard, you don't do enough, you don't work hard enough. It's just preparing us for a journey and the cost of that journey. So what do we do with today's gospel? It's not easy when I first got it, truly, when I don't know that I want to preach this, Father Henry. I think you'd be far better at it. And then he read the gospel and added stuff. And I, <laughs> The truth of it is, is that it is a message that excites me because it is full of love and it is full of grace. But what do we do with it? My first temptation, I have to imagine, and some of us as we read over this, is either we skim past it or it's to soften the text, to explain it away, to reinterpret it to fit our lives. That temptation, however, is just another symptom of consumerism. It infects much of our society, our church, our faith. I think it's interesting to look at what's going on in this passage. 
Jesus' fame is spreading, and people are coming to see and be a part of this movement. This seems like a good thing, right? We all want a crowd. But it's not about drawing a crowd. The crowds have been gathering around Jesus since early in his ministry. He offered healing, exorcisms, teaching, hope, life, good news, bread, freedom, and a new vision. He had what they wanted, and they gathered around, surrounded and pressed in on him. It was like as if they couldn't get enough of Jesus. It was the crowds grew in number, increasing by the thousands. Something changes, however, with today's gospel. They're no longer just gathering when Jesus is around. They're now traveling, as I said earlier. There's more to discipleship, however, than just traveling, than just observing Again, in a broken down term, Jesus says some pretty hard things. Hate your family, hate your life, carry the cross, give up your possessions. All very stark, hard sounding things. But in the full light of the New Testament, Jesus is not really demanding hatred. He's speaking in hyperbole. Does he really mean to hate? No. He cannot command honor your father and mother in Mark 7. 9 through 13, and demand that we also hate them. He can't command husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. As he says in Ephesians, and then advise them to hate their spouse. Jesus, who so loved the little children, he took them in his arms and blessed them. Laying his hands on them, as he did in Mark, could not advise parents to hate them. Neither could he advise his followers to be reconciled to your brother in Matthew, and then encourage brotherly hatred. How could he command, love your enemies, and then call us to hate our friends? The truth is, in biblic- it is in the biblically recommended sense that we love our neighbors as ourselves, in Mark, and to love one another as Christ loved us. We cannot love others too much. We can focus on our family too much. We can dote on the things around us too much, or our loved ones too much, but we can't love them too much. Further, in the final clause, Jesus recommended that each of his followers must hate even his own life. Jesus cannot be recommending a self-loathing of existence. What Jesus is saying paradoxically as he says these things is that your love for me should be so intense, so deep, that everything else in the hyperbole expression of that time, everything else would almost appear to be hatred because your devotion to me is such. But also paradoxically, what our love for him must be so great, so pervasive that our natural love of self and family pales, we should be, we are subordinate everything, even our own being, to our love and commitment to him. He is to be our first loyalty. All other relationships in our lives and things must take second place. But too often we approach our faith and discipleship, or I do, like a big buffet. We take much of what we like going through it, and we pick out the things that we like, and we leave behind what we don't. What's hard to swallow, we pass on and maybe just take a bite to see if we like it. What we disagree or what does not fit our personal opinions and beliefs, we just push aside, or we can be guilty of that. We have to be so careful. That's not how the Gospels portray Jesus or the life of a disciple, of discipleship. To the degree, degree we have done that we have deceived ourselves and our, each other. This is part of the reason that we can fall short. 
in a secularized culture of today, our family, our success, our things can become the center of our Christian ethic. And these things aren't bad in and of themselves. But some of us love all these things which are dear and important in front of our commitment to following Jesus. Often the danger is we love our wives, husbands, children more than we love God. We miss the mark when we put their development, maybe athletically, intellectually, culturally, artistically, socially, before their, social, their spiritual well-being. We fall short when we spend more time in a car driving around to get to the next game or the next practice than we spend praying for our, the souls of our children or our family. By comparison, our lives reveal that we don't put God first. And I know this seems harsh. I'm just preaching the words that Jesus spoke, and there's grace in this. And our lives, too, demonstrate our love for our own life and the love of our family disproportionately. And we're not being the disciples that Jesus is calling us to. Of course we love our families, and we should care deeply for them. And that's the paradox, is that the proper way to love our children is to love God more. The proper way to love our spouse, our family, the people, our neighbors, even our enemies, is to love God more. Because our greater love for God will enable us to love them with a greater love. Disciples are the best lover of God and of family and of friends. Disciples must always be ready to sacrifice, to place all things in second place, to our devotion and obedience to the Father. The relational cost of discipleship may seem hard or harsh, but in the right perspective and in priority, this focuses our lives and makes them richer and fuller as he's transforming us more and more into his image. The things of the world begin to go away. Accepting disciples' costliness produces deeper relationships and love in our lives. And this is what he calls us to in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross is an instrument of execution. He's saying, in effect, he who does not hoist up his cross and die to the things of this world cannot be my disciple. Discipleship is a series of death. As Joe talked about last week, as the sanctification, as we become more and more into the image, these things go away. Disciples follow Christ on a path um, of self-denial at times. And disciples embrace suffering as a part of, as Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering because like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The reward for what we get for our following Jesus for our belief, our faith, as he grows us and transforms us, it's life. It's not sacrifice of just the things we like. He's making us more like him. C.S. Lewis wrote this, the Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are good, any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth and, or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the one you think wicked, the whole outfit. What a beautiful thing that God so deeply wants each part of us. 
Jesus asks all of this from us because he has given every bit of himself and nothing less. He knows more than we do. What is best for each of us? As a loving parent, as we, many of you are as a parent, you know that you have to feed your kids the right foods, right? We don't want them just to eat dessert all the time. So we have to raise them and train them and teach them. Sure, they could have dessert and they would probably be happy for a while, but they'd be riddled with, with health problems and malnourished. And ultimately their lives, would, they would struggle. As parents, we tell them what's best for them. We are raising them up. You need to eat it because it's good for you. Or other aspects of their lives, you need to do this or that because it's the right thing to do. I expect you to study hard, do your homework, make good friends, do your chores. All of these things taken away out of the context of what God's doing in our lives just become legalism. But as the sake of an obedient child following the will of the Father, following the example of Jesus, they begin to make sense. They demand and expect out of love their child might grow and thrive. That's what Jesus is doing in this gospel. He's letting us know the cost. He took the very nature of, the, of a man and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he's not willing to do. To the contrary, he makes it possible for us to do what he did. Having challenges, these hearers of this really, what they call some of his hard words, he shares two parables, and I'll read it real quickly. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet who him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, why the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. These little parables make essentially the same point, but with slightly different emphases. The builder of the tower is free to build, or not as he chooses. The king was being invaded and had to make quick decisions. But both parables emphasize the necessity of careful calculation. What does it cost? To sit down, take time, compute it. If we choose to live like that, there are costs to following Jesus. Costs that are worth it. Costs that offer us life, eternal. A life and a kingdom that is now. We shouldn't be surprised. We know that's true for other parts of our lives. We sacrifice years of study for an education. We sacrifice long hours and weekends for a successful career. Sacrifice time, money and other opportunities to make sure our kids have the things that they need. We sacrifice dessert for a healthy diet and sleeping in for time to work out. We know how to make sacrifices and pay the cost. We do it because these things are important to us. They are priorities to us. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. They're good and important aspects of our lives, but we cannot avoid the obvious question which these leads what cost are we willing to pay? What sacrifices are we willing to make to be disciples of Jesus? There is cost. The headline of this is the cost of discipleship. There is cost to follow. And it's not, it's not transactional. We don't follow so we can get something more. We follow because of our love for our Savior who loved us first. 
who gave himself as a ransom for each of us. There's a reason biblical scholars call today's gospel one of Jesus' hard sayings. It offers really challenging words and raises difficult questions. There are, they are, however, words and questions that offer life. Isn't that why we showed up? Why we do this? In so many ways, we want life. We want to be fully alive. We want to be real and authentic. We want to be like Jesus. Don't let the text scare us away. It really is a text of love and care of a father who loves us deeply and is giving us the instruction and direction that we need. Christ has made this possible. Let's not lose the power and the gifts in these words. Jesus is helping us count the cost. To give up our lives for his sake is actually gaining everything. It's putting to death what is broken, flawed life that ultimately denies Christ. We are not called to just follow along only as observers, but he is inviting us to experience real life, a life that is transformed into his image. What are the places that take focus in your life? Are there things that have taken priority that we need to reshuffle, that have been placed in the way of following Jesus? Are we willing to move them out of the way so that we might live our lives as disciples? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.